I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. Hello, this is the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that every issue in your social media feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Whitney Terrell, the author of the novel The Good Lieutenant. And I'm Vivi Ganeshanathan, also known as Sugi, author of the novel Brotherless Night. Were you a Cormac McCarthy reader? <laughs> Absolutely. Why are you laughing? I don't know, you grew up in Maryland. Does it seem like a very Cormac McCarthy place? Or, or, and you live in Minneapolis, also not a very Cormac McCarthy place in my mind. Mileage varies on that, dude. <laughs> okay, all right. You write about Sri Lanka. There wouldn't, on the surface, appear to be a lot of overlap between your life experience in the world of McCarthy's novels, and yet, you do read him. I mean, isn't that how literature is supposed to work? You like Gabriel Garcia Marquez, but I don't see a lot of overlap between your life and life in Macondo. This is true, and that is what is beautiful about literature. Although I would argue that actually there's probably more overlap between Kansas City and Macondo than Kansas Cityans would like to admit. Um, but it is the genius of Marquez to make me feel that I, that I care about a place that I haven't been to. And, and it seems to have been the genius of Cormac McCarthy to make many different kinds of readers care about his novel set in the American South. Southwest in Mexico. And as everybody knows, McCarthy died recently at the age of 89. So we're going to go back over his career, its high points and low points, with none other than friend of the pod, Oscar Villalon. Oscar Villalon is the editor of the literary magazine Ziziva and a contributing editor for Literary Hub. His writing has appeared in Freeman's, the Virginia Quarterly Review, The Believer, Literary Hub, and other publications. A former board member of the National Book Critics Circle and a former book editor at the San Francisco Chronicle, he was the chair of the 2021 Pulitzer Prize Fiction Jury. He's also been on this show, I think, three other times, so people should be familiar with his face and his voice. Oscar, welcome back. Oh, thank you uh, for having me back. It's always a pleasure to have you with us, our all-time most popular guest. So <laughs> he's like going to be—he's basically like a correspondent now, or whatever, you, a, a contributing editor. <laughs> FNF Hall of Fame. So we invited you on the show because, um, you know, when Cormac McCarthy passed away, of course, literary Twitter was 
celebrating his life. And we saw some of your comments and wanted to hear more. And of course, he had a remarkable career for many reasons that we'll be getting into later in the episode. But I thought that we could all start by talking about when we first encountered his work and what we thought of it. So, Oscar, maybe you could start us off. Oh, uh I'd be happy to. So for me, it was um, when I was an undergraduate in college and uh, was working at the undergraduate library at, at my uh, at my at my alma mater, and we uh, we had a section for new titles, and then one day uh, this title comes in from a Cormac McCarthy called "All the Pretty Horses," and I believe at the time, and y'all could correct me. Um, but I think uh, it started getting some buzz. It got it got buzz even before the book came out. And then I think it was anointed by Oprah. Do you, if my memory serves correct? And so the thing blew up. And it just and uh, I don't know what this says about reading in general, or maybe about my alma mater at the time. But no one was checking out the book. But so at one point, I'm like, well, you yeah, know, no one's going to check it out because you know if I'm if I'm nothing, I'm a uh, very professional about my duties as a librarian. I'm going to check it out. And, and, and see what this is all about. So I did, and I was absolutely blown away. I'd never heard of Cormac McCarthy before. I mean, I could have been older than 20, maybe 19 years old. So I'd you know, never heard of this guy. I had no idea where, uh, where he was coming from. And you know, the prose, of course, and I think you all will speak to this, I'm sure, too, the prose was like nothing I had seen in contemporary U.S. literature. It was astounding. It's so weird that uh, I... Well, I... <laughs> I was, I'm looking at the, to, at the times of these books, and so I thought that All the Pretty Horses came out later because I first encountered Cormac McCarthy in like the mid-90s in grad school, but All the Pretty Horses came out in 1992, so my memory is wrong because I thought that book had not come out because what I read first was uh, like Outer Dark, Child of God, Orchard Keeper, Suchery were the books that I was introduced to, and it wasn't until much later that I read all the Pretty Horses. And the reason that I read those books was because of his language and the connections that I felt in the language to Faulkner, who was a writer that I really liked and whose language I really liked. And I had a friend in graduate school whose language in his stories was starting to look really exciting. And I was like, what are you doing? He's like, well, I really like this guy McCarthy and, and I, I don't know where he gets all his words from. So I'm reading the dictionary and writing down all the cool words, <laughs> using them in my and so I, after a while, I was stealing words from my friend. I'd sneak up to his office when I was visiting his house and steal words. And I was like, that's not cool. So I also did that. And I have like these note cards from back then that have all these words according to different like categories, you know, flora, fauna, food, spirit, scatological, odds and ends, water, fish, mechanical, clothing, all these crazy words that I was writing down to try to be able to write the way that McCarthy was because he, of course, has this incredible vocabulary. Oh, well, um, I love that. And so, yeah, for those who are listening, tune into YouTube to see Whitney hold up these cards. Um, and I think that the first book that I read was The Road. Um, and um, you're right, by the way, Oscar, I did. I looked up the the Oprah thing and, and also one of his rare interviews was with Oprah. And I think I, I vaguely remember that. That must have been like my mid 20s. Um, and so that got a lot of attention. And yeah, like kind of, I think as a as a reader, I have not always been drawn to the bleak, but as a writer, I'm sometimes kind of drawn to the bleak, which is, I don't know, a strange divide that I have yet to reconcile. And as a person and podcaster, you were drawn to the bleak? Yeah, as a person and podcaster, I am drawn to the bleak. And maybe The Road was one of the first times that I was really reading like a book that saw where I saw like kind of a bleakness and depiction of violence that I thought was something to reach for. 
and to kind of think about like how I was going to contend with violent materials since that was something that I was drawn to. And yeah. And then, um, that book, I don't know, it has like this, such a, yeah, such cinematic feel to it. Um, and I think that, yeah, it has had so much influence on how so many people have thought about dealing with the graphic, the kind of like unflinching nature of it. And then, um, I know we're going to do this later, but I'm thinking about the kind of Whitney's comment about all of the words and your comment about the prose being unlike anything else, just kind of floating around and looking for the passage that Whitney wanted us to discuss. I also just found, again, like my mind refreshed by, by the quality of the prose and how kind of crammed it is. Um, like with this, it has this dense quality, like as though everything is really tightly packed. And so there's an efficiency to it that I also wanted to aspire to like the the idea that there's it doesn't feel like there's anything wasted and it has a kind of unabashed um, aspiration to beauty there's a great essay in the times by dan sinyakin i sinyakin i don't know how to say his name uh, an english professor at emory that's called cormac mccarthy had a remarkable literary career it could never happen now i want to look at both ends of that sort of the, both of those assertions starting with the first uh was his career remarkable oscar I mean, you've looked at the careers of a lot of writers in your various roles as literary critic, um, and if so, how? Remarkable. I think what the as- aspect about it that, that was remarkable was um, somehow Oprah picking uh, all the pretty horses, you know, for her uh, uh, for her book club at a time when that book club, I mean, as you all know, would just you know uh, rule the earth. I mean, um, there was literally like winning the lottery. In that sense, I think it was remarkable. You know, so many writers of, of the caliber of a uh, Cormac McCarthy never really find a huge audience. I mean, it just never happens. I mean, Faulkner, for instance, never found that audience. Absolutely. I mean, you know, and, and, it's, and the list is very long. It's extensive. We can, we can go over that for perhaps even hours. But I think what's remarkable is just that, is one, that Oprah discovered him, so to speak, and two that it stuck, you know, that it wasn't just for that one book and that was the end of it, but that the audience that did find him through, let's say, her book club, a significant portion of that stuck with him. And I think that's the part that's remarkable, that um, in spite of the language, I mean, I think the language is beautiful, but the language is challenging, you know. Um, it makes you slow down. It makes you try to listen to, to, to the prose, to the poetry and the lyricism in there. In spite of that, in spite of what you were saying to you about the bleakness, I mean, horribly bleak things, people stuck with him. And for whatever reason, they decided that this was an author that they were going to continue to read when, you know, his, his, when his new works came out. But also, you know, to go back into the backlist, as you know, uh, you know, that's when everything blew up. You know, that's when people start reading Blood Meridian and all the books that you just listed with me. Um, people are like, well, I've never heard of this guy. This is fantastic. Is there more? Um, I don't know how many of those folks might have been disappointed in terms of what they read. You know, uh, some of that early stuff is definitely not All the Pretty Horses, um, unless I missed the necrophilia in All the Pretty Horses. I'm pretty sure that's the case. But in that sense, I think it, it is remarkable. It's not remarkable, though, in the sense that he would be published. I think anybody with any taste in any major publishing house or even minor publishing house, let's say a smaller one, would gladly publish the work of a Cormac McCarthy. It, I don't think that would be the case at all. The case, is, it's, as it always is, is about finding an audience. That he found such a huge audience and that people were appreciative of his work is, I suppose, what's remarkable about his career. 
So, yeah, I guess thinking about the claim that the career path could never happen now, like that kind of stick to that you're describing, like it does seem to me like people do still like new writers still breaking out. They're still finding readers. Was there anything? I mean, we've talked a, a little bit about Oprah um, and she I mean, well, she I mean, also. That... Sorry, Whitney, go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say the argument the guy makes in the article is that it is that he benefited at first by being protected by Albert Erskine, his editor, from having no sales, but got a lot of recognition. You know, he won a MacArthur grant and that kind of stuff. And that then he benefited from the corporatization of publishing, which were able to push all the pretty horses to this special heights. But that nobody in the corporate age could survive in the way that he had when Erskine was taking care of him when he was a young writer. I would add to that something that Paul Yamazaki, who, whom you all know from City Lights, the living legend, Paul Yamazaki, what he said, and I think this is important too, needs to be considered. He was also loved by booksellers and they helped keep him on shelves. I think that's critical. Forget about the corporatization. You know, if booksellers don't like you, then you're in trouble. But if booksellers really love your work, and value it and are willing to keep two or three copies of your book no matter what, even if they don't sell briskly, that's huge. I think Paul even tells the story of that. I think City Lights sold the most copies of any bookstore of Blood Meridian when it first came out, and that was only about 13 copies. Oh, wow. Yes, it was on the radar of, of, uh, of popular culture. In fact, it wasn't even on the radar at all. But, no, no I was just going to say, but they loved it. And so, you know, they supported him. And it was sort of, you know, this gets back to those editors, too, from booksellers saying, we love this, this person. They do keep that into account. Okay, we're going to take a short break here, and we'll be right back. Do you think that booksellers and publishers still have the freedom to do that? I don't, I think to the, I think it's still there. I don't know how effective it is, as, as it might have been in the past, but certainly they do listen to the people who are trying, who actually sell the books, you know, beyond Amazon and beyond online uh, entities. I think for sure they take that feedback in because here's the thing, and this is, this is the important thing, right? About publishing. What's it all about? It's about the backlist. That's what it's about. It's about someone like a Cormac McCarthy finally having all the pretty horses. And now you sell all the other stuff that never sold before. That's where the money is. And you, but you just don't know when it's going to happen or if it will happen. And that means all that stuff still has to be in print. It's got to be it's got to be available. It's got to be on the shelves. It's got to be accessible and orderable. I mean, um, going through and kind of I just for kicks yesterday went to my county library website and started to look up like how many holds there are in Cormac McCarthy books. It's amazing right now. <laughs> it's amazing. Oh, death is always good for sales, alas. <laughs> I mean, it's it's terrible. But also, I mean, the kind of playing nice with booksellers that you're talking about, it's not the kind of playing nice that most people imagine. Most people are maybe imagining like small talk or interviews and signing books. And he famously, he famously did not sign books, right? Like he largely didn't sign them. He signed them for like his children. And he also didn't give interviews. So this isn't about booksellers loving him as a person, um, it's about them loving the work, which seems like an important distinction as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think, yeah, I think someone of Cormac McCarthy's caliber, I would like to believe would, f would have a career no matter what in American letters, uh, whether they'd be able to make a living off of their writing. That's another question altogether, but I would like to believe they would be published and they would be championed. 
I mean, you have to have a good editor. I mean, I think Erskine is really important here. You know, he had he not only edited Faulkner, but he was connected to Ralph. He edited Ralph Ellison, and Ellison wrote positively about McCarthy's work early in his career because Erskine asked him to, you know, because that was his writer. I mean, that's how this, this wasn't because, like, he was sitting around wanting to say nice things about Cormac McCarthy. He probably did after he read the work, but, you know, he got it to him because his editor got it to him. The other thing I noticed about McCarthy's production that makes me feel good is that he did not write very frequently, <laughs> you know? I mean, he had a long time between books. Orchard Keeper, 65, Outer Dark, 68, Child of God, 73, Sutri, 79, Blood Meridian, 85, All the Pretty Horses, 92. Then he sped up a little. You know, I mean, that's like five, four to five years between books, you know, as he just kept going on. Um, now people are encouraged to write a lot more frequently. Sugi and I do not obey that dictum. Tune in again to YouTube for my facial expression during this whole part. But I find it encouraging. And the other interesting thing is like, I mean, The Road came out in 2006 and there was a giant space between that and The Passenger and Stella Maris, these last two books that came out in 22 that I haven't read, to be perfectly honest. I mean, his reputation is entirely composed of everything that happened before that. And so he's a, he's a writer who hasn't really published a book that mattered for more than 20, for almost 20 years. And yet he is at the forefront of the culture at this moment, which is interesting to me. Yeah, I think maybe the last one was No Country for Old Men. Yeah. No, uh, oh, that was 05, and then The Road in 06. He had a big burst there for him. But those were those were almost like novellas, weren't they? They were they were much, uh, they were not nearly as long as as the Border Trilogy books or Blood Meridian. But you're right. Gosh, that's right. Those were that that was him being, you know, uh, Charlie Hustle. You know, uh, uh, two books in two years. So speaking of all the pretty horses, and you know, this these books, what happened? Of course, that's very important to know about McCarthy's career is that he started writing about Tennessee and in the South where he was from, and it was very sort of Faulkner, and you could see the connections. And then he had this shift to writing about the Southwest, right? Which also was very good for his career because all the pretty horses was was well, no, Blood Meridian was really the first time that he did that, and then, but then all of his books were set there, and those were some of his most successful books, you know. And you tweeted recently one small but vital thing I appreciate about his oeuvre is that is his use of Spanish in All the Pretty Horses. To my ear, it reads naturally, and it implied that Spanish is inextricable from re relating the American experience. I wonder if you could talk about that. Sure, and um, yes, and what I mean by American experience specifically, I mean writing about the border, writing about the Southwest. You know, it's, um, I think it's very interesting that uh, he thought it important to include Spanish in those books. I mean, it's all through the Border Trilogy as well, not just, uh, not just in All the Pretty Horses. I think that speaks to somebody who has an understanding of the U.S. that isn't uh, narrow. Well, you know, just reading his books, you know, he has that grand view, that, the cosmology of, I guess you would call it menace, the cosmology of uh, uh, evil versus good, right? And I think that vision of his allows him to kind of see things a little differently, um, allows to see things as they are maybe, as, to, as opposed to the way that people want them to be. And so for me, what I, what I found thrilling was to say, well, oh, you know, my characters, uh, these Anglos who grew up on the border would know Spanish. They would speak Spanish. They would be to degree bicultural. The late Carlos Fuentes talk about this all the time, about the U.S.-Mexico border being its own thing. I think he had a whole story collection about that, the Crystal Frontier, um, that this is a specific region and a region with its own culture and its own understanding of history. 
and he reflected that, which I, which I, which I found to be tremendous. It also found to be liberating because, you know, if he can do this, then, you know, other folks, why not you? If you want to employ Spanish or whatever other language you want to employ in English, why not? If it's integral to the story, that's to say it makes sense. I feel like Roberto Bolaño is the is the writer that I think of also who wrote about the border, but was influenced by uh, McCarthy's work. I feel like 2666, if you look at the sort of way that that book's written, like it seems to me that there's he's at least read McCarthy. So not only did McCarthy pay homage to Hispanic communities, but specifically in Blood Meridian, he covers conflict between Native Americans and then the novel's white protagonists and just during the Mexican-American War. Um, and an article in the L.A. Review of Books discusses how Blood Meridian is viewed as a, and I'm quoting here, paralyzing critique on the violence of America's westward expansion. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how his work intersects with Native American history. Well, I don't know if I could, if I could speak to that intelligently, but I'll say this. He, I think what Blood Meridian makes clear, and, and I let's back up a little bit, too. I think someone else also would, what I think would agree with this, of all people, would be Larry McMurtry, that the West is violent. The settlement of the West was horrifically violent. Uh, it was not an intellectual endeavor at all, but something of, of just of blood and earth. I mean, it was horrific. You know, killing was lingua franca. That's what it was. You know, genocide was you know, uh, the order of the day. And I think what McCarthy does in Blood Meridian is present that to us through the filter of, to me, what seems like almost uh, the King James version of the Bible as something biblical, as something almost Old Testament-like of a, of a, of a deep-seated, if you will, an ancient evil that is perpetuated upon the land and upon people. You know, that I, we could talk about this later too, but there's definitely something in his work that speaks to the Apostle Paul and the idea that we are born of sin. <laughs> and it's born of flesh, so you're just damned to sin, you know? Um, there's not, you know, it's like a constant fight for redemption. It's a constant uh, struggle to, you know, to try to rise above your ugliness. And I think in Blood Meridian, he kind of lays that out in terms of, well, I mean, these guys are getting, what, they're getting paid for each scalp, are they not? As a, you know, as a recall, uh, in the novel, I mean, they're there to kill, they're getting paid to kill, both, I believe, by the uh, Americans and by the Mexicans, to just take out these, you know, these, these native peoples. And what they do, it, because they're afraid of the Apaches, is start killing Mexicans, scalping them, and then selling the scalps of the Mexicans, the Mexicans right. back to the Mexican government. So, I mean, it's the idea, it's like demystic, you know, it's like, Saying, and these are all also, I think, notably ex-Confederates, you know, people who are on the wrong side of American history, who have been depicted positively in the past, being depicted as agents of, of sort of pure transactional horribleness, you know. Yeah, and, and I think a sense, too, of that this this sort of, if you and I, I, I will use the word again because I think this is what it really is, this, this sort of evil is difficult to extinguish that it, it rears itself up, it rears its, its ugly head often. And, you know, to be in front of it, like in the character of the judge, is awesome in the, in the, in the true sense of that word. You know, it, it inspires awe because it is just so, the enormity uh, of their cruelty, of, of their capacity to just destroy is, is jaw-dropping. 
I, uh, the only passages from that book that sort of make me uncomfortable, and they've been quoted recently a lot, are the descriptions of the Apaches as this kind of like immensely, you know, horrific, kind of weirdly bedraggled, you know, and I just thought those don't work for me. I don't know that those are going to last uh, that well. And I bet Amer- I would think that Native American readers would not like them. The, the cloud of dust and the Apaches sort of describe like these sort of monstrous creatures that are coming towards the uh, the judge and his troop. Although I will say, you could probably make an argument too that you know uh, these are they're sort of sort of almost like the um, like the harpies that they are now getting their comeuppance. That, well, they you know, do. Yeah, exactly. And that this is what it looks like, you know. And so, in other words, maybe not that as that being what those people are, but rather as avenging angels, horror, you know, terrible in their fury you know, uh, uh, inspiring horror, but hey, they got it coming. I also think the way, the best way to read that passage for me, the most forgiving way is to read that as they are being seen by these men in this way. And this is how those men would have seen them. Yeah. And it, but again, I think it should be emphasized too, you know, this, the West he's depicting is both, I mean, it's, it's, it's fictional and it's, and it's real. And by the fictional part, I mean that it does feel biblical. You know, you read that and it feels, if to me anyway, it harkened to like reading the Old Testament and reading about the terrible tribulations and the wars among people and the, you know, and, and, and the fight for land, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it has, to me, that sort of mythicness. So I, I think, you know, that may be something to take into consideration, that it's, you know, that it is this sort of fever dream. Okay, we're going to take a short break here and we'll be right back. So we're talking a little bit here about what characterizes his prose. And I think that's not just in Blood Meridian, but really, I mean, I think of so much of his prose is really having this biblical force. Um, And Saul Bellow once described McCarthy's style as, and I'm quoting here, an absolutely overpowering use of language, his life-giving and death-dealing sentences. I love this description. So in thinking about McCarthy's prose, are there other trademarks of his writing um, or hallmarks that you think are the things that have kept readers with him, things we haven't mentioned yet? Oh, it has to be the dialogue, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's just entertaining and delightful. It's wonderful. Um, it's hilarious. It's menacing. I mean, the, the dialogue is is really, I think, I, I think for many people might be the draw to, to McCarthy. He's a, he's a great talker. It's really hard to do on the page. It's very hard to do on the page, but he is a great talker. Here's some dialogue from just from Blood Meridian early on, just two people talking. Kindly fell fell on hard times, ain't ye, son, he said. I just ain't fell on no good ones. You ready to go to Mexico? I ain't lost nothing down there. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, I was going to say, you, know, you think of the, the dialogue from No Country for All Men. You know, uh, the dialogue from the Border Trilogies. You know, uh, all of it, it, it has rhythm. It, I mean, it, it has texture. Um, you could definitely hear the Faulknerian in there. You could hear all those sort of influences. But there's also just a lot of humor. But they ha- but it has gravitas, too, which is really hard. To These sentences carry, even just what you, you were quoting there from, Whitney, uh, these lines that should be perhaps even toss-away sort of lines don't feel that way. They do feel like they have a lot of ballast to them. This maybe is the, when people talk... I, I've read that people said that there's Hemingway in him. And I think if there is Hemingway in him, it's in the dialogue. 
where it's clip and it's short, but what's not being said is huge. And then what's being implied is huge as well. So we've been discussing McCarthy's prose, um, and I think, of course, it would be sad to do this without reading from him. So we have given, we've all had a little homework assignment to pick a passage from one of his books. So we're each going to read one and explain why we chose it. Um, And Oscar, as our guest, you get to go first. Well, thank you. Um, So I should, before I read uh, two things, one, we moved uh, to our new place a couple of years ago. And I've still not organized my library. So I have no idea where anything is. And I was trying to find something from McCarthy that I wanted to really read, and I couldn't find it. But I did find another of his books, uh, The Crossing, the second of the Border Trilogy books. And there was a scene in there I wanted to read, but then I thought, no, I don't think I will because it's sort of a spoiler. But there is a small section there I think is just a great example of, of just the way his prose sounds like, uh, his rhythms, the way he deploys Spanish in, in his work, particularly in, in the Border Trilogy, and just basically what makes McCarthy so uh, McCarthy. So this is um, a scene from The Crossing where the uh, character Billy uh, Parham is uh, out trying to get some medical help for his little brother Boyd, who's like 15, who's been uh, terribly hurt. It was almost dark when he left. The Munoz woman tried to have him wait until morning, but he would not. The doctor had arrived in the late afternoon, and he had left the dressings for the woman in a package of Epsom salts, and the woman had fixed boy to tea made from manzanilla and arnica on the root of the golondrina bush. She put up provisions for Billy in an old canvas moral, and he slung it over the horn of the saddle and mounted up and turned the horse and looked down at her. ¿Dónde está la pistola? he said. She said it was under the pillow beneath his brother's head. He nodded. He looked out down the road toward the bridge and the river, and he looked at her again. He asked her if any men had been to the ejido. See, she said, los veces. He nodded again. Es peligrosa para ustedes? She shrugged. She said the life was dangerous. She said that for a man of the people, there was no choice. He smiled. Mi hermano es hombre de la gente. See, she said, claro. He rode south along the road through the riverside cottonwoods, riding through the town of Mata Ortiz and riding the moon up out of the west to its cool meridian before he turned off and put up for the remainder of the night in a grove of trees he'd skylighted from the road. He rolled himself in a serape and he hung his hat over the tops of his standing boots and did not wait till daylight. He rode all day the day following. Few cars passed and he saw no riders. In the evening, the truck that had carried his brother to San Diego came lumbering down the road from the north in a slow uncoiling of road dust and ground to a stop. The workers on the bed of the truck waved and called out to him, and he rode up and pushed his hat back on his head and held up his hand to them. They gathered along the edge of the truck bed and held out their hands, and he leaned from the horse and shook hands with them, every man. They said that it was dangerous for him to be on the road. They did not ask about Boyd, and when he began to tell them, they waved away his words, for they had been to see him that very day. They said that he had eaten and that he'd drunk a small glass of pulque for the vigor in it, and that all signs were of the most affirmative nature. They said that only the hand of the Virgin could have sustained him through such a terrible wound. Herida tan grave, they said. Tan horrible. Herida tan fea. They spoke of his brother lying with a pistol under his pillow and spoke in a high whisper. Tan joven, they said. Tan valiente y peligroso por todo eso. 
como el tigre herido en su cueva. Billy looked at them. He looked out across the cooling country to the west, the long bands of shadows. Doves were calling from the caseas. The workers believed that his brother had killed the manco in a gunfight in the streets of Boquilla y Anexas. That the manco had fired upon him without provocation and what folly for the manco had not reckoned upon the great heart of the huerito. They pressed him for details. How the huerito had risen from his blood in the dust to draw his pistol and shoot the manco dead from his horse. They addressed Billy with great reverence and they asked him how it was that he and his brother had set upon their path of justice. <laughs> well, I'm glad you were doing the uh, Spanish in that passage and not me. Uh, that was beautiful. You know, just to note, too, what I also appreciated about his Spanish, it's Mexican Spanish. Uh, it's border Spanish. It's very specific. Um, and I think that sort of detail is, is, um, is uh, admirable. That's cool. I wouldn't, I mean, I didn't know that. That's the first time I've heard somebody tell me like, okay, he really actually got the Spanish right here. It's not just a gesture toward it, but it's really specific linguistically to the, to the mm -hmm. time and place that he's writing about. That's amazing, but not, that's believable. All right, I'm going to go next. This is from Outer Dark, which is one of the probably first books that I read by him. And it's a, a really happy story about a woman who has a baby with her brother. And then the brother sets the baby out in the woods and the and the, and the, and the woman has to go try to spend the rest of the book trying to find the baby. It does not go well. This is a passage from the point of view of, of the brother who's looking for the woman, his sister. And it's just, it's physical writing. I mean, one of the things that was amazing about McCarthy is just his ability to create physical space and to create comedy out of physical space. So this guy is crossing a river on a ferry and there's a horse on the ferry and the the ferry has gotten loose and, and the ferryman's fallen overboard and the horse is on it and it's the middle of the night and he's just going to write a passage about this, which is sort of almost like Bugs Bunny to me, but also serious. So he's on this, he's on, the, the ferryman is gone. We don't know where he is and, and this ferry is wandering around in the dark. Holmes splashed forward. There was no sound. Ho, he called. He could see nothing. He felt his way along the gunwale. Something reared up out of the dark before him with a strangled cry, and he fell onto the deck, scrabbling backwards as the hoofs sliced past him and burst against the planking. He clambered crabwise back along the deck, wet now and very cold. Ho there, he called. Nothing answered. It's tied, he said. But it wasn't tied. When he crossed to the other side, he heard it go down the deck and whinny and crash, and then he heard it coming back. His eyeballs ached. He dropped to the deck and crawled beneath the rail up to the scuppers and the horse pounded past and crashed in the bow. He pulled himself up and started for the rear of the barge and then he heard it coming again. He clawed at the darkness before him, cursing, throwing himself to the deck again while the horse went past with a sound like pistol fire. He waited, cheek against the cold wood. The barge drifted, swung slowly about, trembling. A race of water wandered over the deck, ran coldly upon him in his shirt and down his boots and receded again. He could not hear the horse. He could hear the sandy seething of the river beneath him. After a while, he rose and started back up the deck. A black fog had set in, and he could feel it needling on his face and against his blind eyeballs. When the horse came at him the third time, he flattened himself, half-crazed against the forward bulkhead, and howled at it. The horse re reared before him, black and screaming, the hoofs exploding on the planks. He could smell it. It yawned past him and crashed and screamed again, and there was an enormous concussion of water and then nothing. As if all that fury had been swallowed up in the river, traceless as fire. That's the end of that part anyway. Okay, we're going to take a short break here, and we'll be right back.
I just know, look at all the way he, that like needling, the, the way that the, the, the fog's needling his face, the way he uses verbs. I think people have lost the ability to use verbs other than to be verbs or the verb to have or to take. You know, the way that you can just, the way that he is expressive in his use of verbs and he always is insisting on active verbs and motion, I think is one of the important parts of his writing. Yeah, I think that's part of maybe, I think before I've used the word crammed, which I think isn't quite right, but like maybe, yeah, like a density and the density is made partly of verbs. And as you're reading, I'm also thinking about, um, I don't know if either of you saw this, but somewhere on social media, there was this, this image going around, which was like punctuation in someone else's work and punctuation in his work. And it was like a page littered with all sorts of things in the other writer's work. And then his page, which was like just very sparse. Right. And the length of the sentences, the ands, the the like demand on the reader is not just the density of the the vocabulary, but also like the length of the sentences. And there's like a faith in the reader that's being demonstrated here. Right. Like you can stay with me. I totally believe that you can. He doesn't use a lot of subordinate clauses. Right. Right. He is subject, verb, subject, verb, subject, verb, object, you know, and those objects are always have interesting are interesting nouns all the time. And the verbs are always good. And the declarative nature of the syntax is part of the reason that it reads as biblical, I think. So I have done something slightly weird in choosing my passage, which is that I am now reading a book that I have not read of his before because my friend Caroline Casey was tweeting about Sutri. And I was like, I have not read that one. Whitney has read that one, as he has said. And I started reading it. And I was reading it aloud to practice for the podcast. I was reading it to um, in the presence of my stepdaughters. <laughs> and I was reading it. And they were like... Everyone in the room clearly kind of held held in the thrall of this prose. And then also at some point, uh, my younger stepdaughter leaned over to me and was like, Sugs, what is this book about? Drunk guy. And I told her and then she said and she was like, and when does it get to that point? But she was also I mean, I think, yeah, anyway, you'll hear like so this is from actually the prologue to Sutri, which is italicized and has some of the same qualities as the passages that you've chosen. But but yeah, like there's no dialogue in here. And I'm going to read, I guess, a couple of very long paragraphs. Um, okay, Dear friend, now in the dusty clockless hours of the town when the streets lie black and steaming in the wake of the water trucks, and now when the drunk and the homeless have washed up in the lee of walls in, in alleys or abandoned lots and cats go forth high-shouldered and lean in the grim perimeters about, now in these soot-blacked brick or cobbled corridors where light wire shadows make a gothic harp of cellar doors, no soul shall walk save you. Old stone walls unplumbed by weathers, lodged in their striae fossil bones, limestone scarabs rucked in the floor of this once inland sea. Thin dark trees through yon iron palings where the dead keep their own small metropolis. Curious marble architecture, steel and obelisk and cross and little rain-worn stones where names grow dim with years. Earth packed with samples of the casket maker's trade, the dusty bones and rotted silk, the deathware stained with carrion. Out there under the blue lamplight, the trolley tracks run on to darkness curved like cock heels in the pinchback dusk. The steel leaks back the day's heat. You can feel it through the floors of your shoes. Past these corrugated warehouse walls down little sandy streets where blown-out autos sulk on pedestals of cinder block. Through warrens of sumac and pokeweed and withered honeysuckle giving onto the scored clay banks of the railway. 
Gray vines coiled leftward in this northern hemisphere, what winds them shapes the dogwalk shell. Weeds sprouted from cinder and brick. A steam shovel reared in solitary abandonment against the night sky. Cross here. By frog rails and fish plates where engines cough like lions in the dark of the yard. To a darker town, past lamps stoned blind, past smoking oblique shacks and china dogs and painted tires where dirty flowers grow. Down pavings rent with ruin, the slow cataclysm of neglect, the wires that belly pole to pole across the constellations hung with kite string, bolos composed of hobbled bottles or the toys of the smaller children. Encampment of the damned. Precincts perhaps where dripping lepers prowl unbelled. Above the heat and the improbable skyline of the city, a brass moon has risen and the clouds run before it like watered ink. The buildings stamped against the night are like a rampart to a farther world forsaken, old purposes forgot. Countrymen come for miles with the earth clinging to their shoes and sit all day like mutes in the marketplace. The city constructed on no known paradigm, a mongrel architecture reading back through the works of man in a brief delineation of the aberrant, disordered, and mad. A carnival of shapes upreared on the river plain that has dried up the sap of the earth for miles about. I will stop there. Like, my God. (laughs) Sutter is like the book where he was like, fuck it. I'm doing whatever I want. I'm just going to describe shit. You can always tell also when a student has read it recently and they do this. I'm like, I'm like, don't do that. (laughs) Don't. I couldn't help but thinking, I wonder how that would have done in a workshop. I, I, I was absolutely thinking that, right? And this came out in 1979. So not only did he say, fuck it, he wrote it over a 20-year period of time. And when you do that, it requires saying fuck it for 20 years every day. I think he thought of it as his masterpiece, you know? And, it, and, um, and then, it, fortunately, he learned some better narrative ideas, you know? I mean, the description is amazing, right? But if he had continued to write books like Sutri, he would, we wouldn't be talking about him today. I love Sutri. I'm, not, I'm just saying, like... No, I think you're absolutely right. And you could tell from the passage I read the leaps he makes in terms of narrative drive. Yeah. You know, it's like, okay, he kind of reins it in and channels it you know, more effectively, I think. It is interesting. We went in reverse chronology, right? Oscar wrote the most recent, read the most recent thing. I read something sort of medium deep. And then, and then I, uh, you read that, the, the, the deep cut, uh, Satri Sugi. Yeah. And I mean, it, I think you're right. Like it is like my little stepdaughter putting her hand on my arm and going, Sugs, what is this about? <laughs> and yet at the same time, I'm absolutely in awe of like some of those phrases. I mean, you can see all of that. I mean, that's the thing is that he pulls it off in a sense because his descriptive ability is so incredibly amazing and you just sort of give into it, I guess. I mean, my first book, The Huntsman, has a guy fishing in the beginning on the Missouri River where I spent a lot of time fishing. And I, I mean, where I spent a lot of time, I built a raft, I'd floated on the river. I spent a, I like the river, but he's also there because I, there's lots of river writing in Sutri that I admired and wanted to try my own hand at. Yeah, I mean, that's just hearing that passage, you can hear uh, the poetry you know, of what he's, of, of his, of his prose, frankly. And what I mean by that is that you could see at work a writer who's trying to help you see the world in you. That the reason those descriptions are such as, such as they are, the way he describes things, is to knock the scales off your eyes. Yes! And to, you know, and to, which is what poetry is supposed to do, to see the world anew to see it as it is uh, without all the dross of just habit, you know, uh, cloaking it 
you knock that off and then wow there it is it's and it's majestic and it's again to use that word awesome yeah absolutely well listeners i think we have given you the whole span of cormac mccarthy's career this is I mean, I think it's impossible to have an exhaustive discussion. But as Whitney said, we've yeah, we've gone back in time and trying to trace his arc. Um, Oscar, we so appreciate your joining us once again on the show to pay tribute to McCarthy. Um, it's just always a treat to have you with us. And we look forward to having you back soon. Thank you so much. Oh, you're most welcome. Thank you for having me. That's it for the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. This podcast is produced by Ann Knigendorf. Our theme music is composed by Travis Workman. You can subscribe to us by typing fiction slash non slash fiction into the search bar of your favorite podcast app. Please go give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts if you haven't done it yet. You can also listen, find previous episodes, and read excerpts from our interviews at the Literary Hub website, lithub.com, where the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast page is listed under the Lit Hub Radio tab. We'll also post that show page with links to the books we referenced this week on Facebook at FNF Pod, on Twitter at FNF Talk on Instagram at fiction.non.fiction.podcast. You can find video of our interviews at our own Fiction Nonfiction Podcast YouTube channel and IGTV channel and on our website at fnfpodcast.net where our back episodes are grouped by topic areas. Happy reading! <laughs>